Greetings, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode focused on GLP-1 entitled To Add Insulin or Not to Add Insulin, Case Conversations in Type 2 Diabetes. I will take a moment to introduce ourselves. My name is Dr. Tina Tady, and I am an Associate Investigator and an Endocrinologist for Advent Health Translational Research Institute in Orlando, Florida. And I am joined today by Ms. Lucia Novak, who is the president and the owner of the Diabetes Consulting Services in North Bethesda, Maryland. So with that, Lucia, let's jump into our case. And this case is centered around Roger. Roger, who's a 57-year-old gentleman with a 10-year history of type 2 diabetes with chronic hyperglycemia, who has been hesitant to start an injectable therapy. Now, his medical history includes obesity, hypertension, and stage two kidney disease. He has a BMI of 32. His blood pressure is rather well controlled with being 118 over 77, and he does not smoke. His A1C is 8.2% and his LDL is 110. He is currently on the max doses of the medications and he is taking them as he is supposed to for uh, for hyperlipidemia. His GFR is 70 and he does have albuminuria. His UACR is more than 200 milligrams per grams of creatinine when it was last measured. Now let's talk about his medications. He is on metformin 1000 milligrams twice a day, citagliptin 100 milligrams daily, glyburide 10 milligrams twice a day, embagliflozin 25 milligrams daily, and losartan in addition to maximum dose statin as well. So Lucia, with this, for Roger, I turn to you. What are your thoughts on which medication would you recommend for Roger? Thank you, Tina. What a very interesting case. And hello to everyone out there. Um, I will tell you that this is a common scenario where we have patients that are on maximal doses of non-insulin or non-injectable therapies, and they're not at goal and also hesitant to start an injection. That is not at all uncommon. So if we just look at the risk factors that will help us to kind of discuss to Roger why we need to make an adjustment, because at this point, he's at a crossroads. He's got maximum doses of everything we currently could put him on at this point, A1C of 8.2. He's going to need something else. And that something else is either going to be insulin because of what he's already on, or an injectable GLP-1. So if we look at his history that you mentioned with his 10-year history of type 2 diabetes and his albuminuria, we know that albuminuria is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And so when we look at this, we want to look at medications that actually have proven cardiovascular disease benefit He's already on empagliflozin, which does have um, a cardiovascular disease indication. But we also want to make sure that since he's on that medication and his A1C remains above target, 
we probably should be considering another drug from a class that also has that indication. And that is where the GLP-1 receptor agonists come in. He also has, as I mentioned, chronic kidney disease with albuminuria. And the ADA guidelines actually recommend that if someone is already on an SGLT2 inhibitor with that indication to be used to help with kidney function, um, and the empagliflozin is one, then a GLP-1 receptor agonist should be added, especially if the, G, if the A1C remains about, above target. He also has comorbid obesity. And so when you add all of those things together, my, my go-to would be adding a GLP-1 receptor agonist that has that cardiovascular indication. Um, and hopefully that would be the correct answer for him as well. Lucia, thank you. I'd like to bring up that why is it that our guidelines recommend GLP-1 receptor agonists above insulin? And as you mentioned, certainly, you know, he could also be taking insulin. So what are your thoughts on that, Lucia? That's another great question, Tina. And I will tell you, it's another question that I find um, is asked a lot from our peers and colleagues out there is when do you know when to add insulin and when to use another agent? And we have data that shows that GLP-1 receptor agonist, when compared to a basal insulin like insulin glargine, is just as effective in improving glucose, but without the additional risk of weight gain, and especially with someone who already has comorbid obesity, as well as without the increased risk of hypoglycemia. And we have data that shows that even though um, Roger has a long history of type 2 diabetes and to the point where many of us would believe that he's got beta cell failure and probably will not respond to a non-insulin agent, we have seen that it is best to give these patients an opportunity to try a GLP-1 receptor agonist because they do tend to respond and they respond very favorably. So if, I think it's worthwhile to just discuss the mechanism of action of a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and it will help us to understand the clinical effects that we see with this medication. So native GLP-1 is secreted from the L cells of the small intestine upon eating. But when GLP-1 is released, it does several things simultaneously. And probably one of the most important things that it does is it sets into motion the proper release of the beta cells to secrete insulin first phase as well as second phase insulin response, which is, if not blunted, it's absent in people with type 2 diabetes. And at the same time, it also signals to the alpha cells to reduce the secretion of glucagon. Um, glucagon is the hormone that is counter-regulatory to insulin, and we certainly do not want that to be active when someone is in the fed state. The interesting thing about the GLP-1 receptor agonists is that these med medications do this in a glucose-dependent fashion. 
So when the glucoses are elevated is when we see GLP-1 receptor agonists impacting first and second phase insulin response, as well as um, reducing the secretion of glucagon. Once the blood sugars start coming back down into an appropriate range, that impact of GLP-1 receptor agonists is no longer impacting insulin secretion and nor is it impacting the suppression of glucagon. So patients do not experience hypoglycemia unless, of course, they're on either insulin or, in his case, gliburide. But again, it does have the central effect on, of course, the central nervous system, and it does signal to the, hypo, um, the hypothalamus to suppress appetite. And in addition to that, it will also slow down the GI tract. So when we start to eat, our own native GLP-1 works to slow down our GI tract, which helps with postprandial glucose elevations. So while insulin may be an appropriate choice for someone with hyperglycemia, despite his multiple medications, the GLP-1 receptor agonist class have been shown to have at least as much glucose-lowering benefit as basal insulin, but without increasing the risk of hypoglycemia. And typically, we can also reduce, if not stop, the sulfonylurea. We also see less weight gain and actually a significant potential for loss when compared to basal insulin. In addition, many agents in the GLP-1 receptor agonist class have also been shown to have a positive benefit on reducing MACE. Insulin is neutral. It doesn't increase the risk for harm when it comes to MACE, but it also doesn't convey any benefit. What we do know is that insulin is inherently has a risk for hypoglycemia and hypoglycemia in someone with established cardiovascular disease could actually be fatal. So we also now see that we have some renal studies that are coming out that there may be some additional renal benefits with GLP-1 receptor agonists and that has not been studied with insulin. So Tina, which of the GLP-1 receptor agonists would you recommend to Roger and why? Thank you, Lucia. Now, with regards to which GLP-1 receptor agonists would one choose for Roger, I again think there are two ways to think about it. One again is an aspect of discussion from our perspective as clinicians. The fact that, as you mentioned, the GLP-1 receptor agonists demonstrate cardiovascular benefit and substantial weight loss. Those would be the ones that would be the best suited. Now, as we know, there are two GLP-1 receptor agonists that have FDA approval for weight loss the subcutaneous weekly semaglutide in the dose of 2.4 milligrams, also marketed as Vigovi, and the 3 milligrams daily liraglutide, which is marketed as Succenda, are approved for weight loss by the FDA. Now, an important point of discussion here is that even the GLP-1 receptor agonists that do not have the FDA approval for obesity management in clinical trials have shown substantial weight loss. So, you know, it's important to note that, um, of course, as much as we would like to add an agent, insurance coverage, of course, is critical. So it's important to keep all the options for GLP-1 receptor agonists on the table. And 
cardiorenal benefit that you've talked about, of course, is a very clinical, important consideration for Roger as well. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is Roger has not yet had an atherosclerotic event, but he certainly does have the risk factors and is at high risk. So this would be, in fact, a good opportunity and, in fact, the right time to discuss prevention of clinical cardiovascular disease with Roger and to explain the importance of addition of GLP-1 for that reason. However, I must say it's important to consider what Roger wants as well. And before we go there, uh, when we look at our GLP-1 receptor agonist, for the ones that are approved for secondary prevention are liraglutide, that is daily liraglutide, also known as Victoza, and <coughs> excuse me, injectable semaglutide, which is weekly dose that is ozempic. And then you have dulaglutide, which is also a weekly GLP-1 marketed as Trilicity, and that is approved for both primary and secondary prevention. So, you know, in talking about Roger's preference, it certainly is important to ask him which one he prefers with the distinction between weekly or daily. Now, I must say that patients love the convenience of a weekly uh, injectable. There are, of course, fewer needle sticks, easier to travel, and when you're carrying medication with you. However, on the flip side, I have to admit I've come across patients that do prefer the daily injection so that they don't forget. So I think definitely, Lucia, to answer your question, which one to choose, as much as we discuss all the important points with Roger, it becomes important to ask Roger which one does he prefer. So, you know, we discussed so many things as to what we would discuss with Roger, and turns out that he is reluctant to start an injectable therapy. So how could we help him in overcoming this, Lucia? Another really good question because, yes, most patients do not say, yippee, I get to poke myself with a needle. So um, just as you mentioned, we want to make sure we understand what he is willing to do, but also understanding what he's going to have access to. So I always start the conversation with, if your insurance covers this particular class of medication, would you prefer a once daily oral, a once daily injection, or a once weekly injection? And if you want to do a once weekly injection, if your insurance covers it, would you prefer to see the needle or not see the needle? And then I would have to go into, well, if you want to do the pill, you this is what is required for taking that medication. It has to be on an empty stomach. And so there's other medications that they are taking. And some of my patients are also on thyroid medication, and that also has to be first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. So then they find that maybe this is not as easy as it initially sounded, and perhaps a once weekly injection would be great. Once we cross that hurdle, then what I do, especially if they're still reluctant, and most of our patients, it's not necessarily that they're afraid of needles, it's what the needle means. It means they've got bad diabetes, they're gonna die, they've got complications, their diabetes just became very real for them. Um, and they also associate pain. And they the pain that they know what comes from needles is poking fingers. And um, they always ask, is it going to hurt? 
And so I try to have that initial injection done in the office with me. It is extremely empowering. If I know the patient is able to do it with me when they go home, I know that they'll be able to do it by themselves at home. Oh, thank you very much, Lucia. Now you mentioned an oral GLP-1 receptor agnus. Um, and the only one on the market being oral semaglutide, also marketed as ribelsas. So what do we think? Do we think that oral semaglutide would in fact be a good option for Roger, given his comorbid conditions and risk factors? What do you think? So I think that um, the oral semaglutide would be an option for him since he does not currently have established cardiovascular disease, but we know that type 2 diabetes is a cardiovascular risk factor, and this drug is as potent and has the same mechanism of action as the injectable form of semaglutide. Um, what I do know is that the CVOT trial for um, for oral semaglutide. So the initial one was the Pioneer trial, and that was not powered to show superiority. That ended up showing that it was safe for people who had established disease. But there is an ongoing trial called the SOUL trial, S-O-U-L, and it is currently ongoing. And again, it is looking at benefit cardiovascular events using oral semaglutide in patients with type two who have established cardiovascular disease or they're at high risk with chronic kidney disease. Absolutely, Lucia. So, you know, Roger has chronic kidney disease as well. He has a GFR of 70 and he has albuminuria as well. So, you know, what if the renal function were worse? Is there a threshold for at which or below which GLP-1 receptor agnus cannot be given. And does this apply to all GLP-1 receptor agnus? Because as you discussed, kidney disease itself is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So how do we navigate this? So um, when it comes to diabetes medications, especially our patients will typically have um, comorbid chronic kidney disease. And if not due to hypertension and dyslipidemia, it's often age-related kidney decline that we need to be mindful of. And we typically have to dose medications based on renal function. The good news here is all of the GLP-1 receptor agonists that end in the word glutide, dulaglutide, semaglutide, liraglutide, they can be used throughout the career of a person that has diabetes and have been studied in people with varying degrees of kidney insufficiency. And so you, and we also saw that there was no need to change doses. There was no increased risk of adverse events. And um, they were just as, they, they received just as much benefit when it came to A1C lowering with these medications. The exendin class, however, that would be the lixizenatide and the exenatide products, both the short-acting exenatide and the long-acting once-weekly exenatide, do have renal limitations listed in the labeling. Um, usually, we have to stop using these medications in patients with chronic kidney disease, especially if their estimated glomerular filtration rate drops below 30 um, mLs per minute. 
And lixizenatide is actually not recommended in those with an EGFR of less than 15. So we can go a little longer with that one. So Tina, would you like to wrap this up with a nice bow and give us our closing comments? Absolutely, uh, Lucia. Thank you. This has been a rather robust discussion about Roger and how we can help him. So while adding insulin is certainly an acceptable option for those that when the A1C is not at goal, it's critical to think of the additional benefits that an agent can offer. Now, dulaglutide has an FDA indication for primary and secondary prevention, whereas loraglutide, dulaglutide, and injectable semaglutide are FDA approved for secondary prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The GLP-1 receptor agonists certainly also come with the benefit of weight loss, which of course helps address the disease state at the root cause. You know, some of the other advantages, of course, are avoidance of hypoglycemia and the safety profile with the renal dosing. So for these reasons, I think with their safety profile, the beneficial effects that the GLP-1 receptor agonists have, they certainly are well positioned as being used preferably over insulin when possible in appropriate patients. And this is certainly endorsed by the guidelines as well. So certainly a very robust conversation around Roger, I must say, to uh, Lucia. These were some really great teaching points. Lucia, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Tina, and thank you all for listening. So to those listening, to obtain your CME credit, please visit cry-med.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, Please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primate.com for claiming CME credit. Thank you.